and welcome to The Schism. This podcast is all about critical thinking, dot connecting, the nature of reality, and trying to uncover the truth about the world we live in, society, who we are, and where we come from. Hello, and welcome to The Schism. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Adam. Hello, everyone. And today we have a very special guest on the show, presenter, podcaster and activist, Gareth Ike. Gareth, thanks so much for coming on the show today. No, it's a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, and sorry for the other week when I was useless and left you sat there, stood up at the dinner table. Yeah. Well, we actually wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, many of our listeners have heard you on your WTAF podcast or presenting right now on Iconic, which you set up with your father, David Ike, and your brother, Jamie. And we're guessing it was Bedlam in the Iconic studios a couple of weeks back because the shit well and truly hit the fan with your dad being banned from the Netherlands. And can you tell us a bit about what happened and where you're at with it all now? Yeah, uh, to be honest, mate, it's one of those things that, you know, like, you know what's coming. Same with the Rona and all that nonsense. Like, you know what's coming. You know what's coming down the line. You talk about it. But then when it happens, you're still like, what the fuck? And I, I remember talking, we were filming The Walk Up in Scotland. I was talking to Neil Oliver about that. And he was like, well, how did you not know, given like you lot have been talking about it for years? I was like, yeah, but when it actually happens, you know, when actually stuff goes bonkers, it is still bonkers, even for, for us. So basically, um, Dad was driving down to the south coast to get in the Channel Tunnel to go to, to the Netherlands um, to speak at a peace rally, believe it or not. and um, Sounds dangerous. Yeah, yeah well, and those anti-war rallies are very dangerous, yeah. It's sign a lot of hate there, they do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, so I was basically going out for a run. Um, he was heading down. I was like, right, I'll do, you know, I, I fancy a glass of wine tonight, so I'll do a 10-minute run, so all the guilt's out the window, right? And um, for some reason, I don't know why, but I was just like, let me just check my emails just to make sure I've got nothing urgent to do. So I actually do get 10 minutes of peace. And I had two emails from, from the Dutch government. Um, why they came to me is a bloody question in itself, but they came to me. Um, first of all, laying out the fact that he was banned and it was basically just a bloody word salad in, in Dutch, uh, which I sent on to, to, to Christiana who, who works for Iconic and she's Dutch. Obviously she can understand it. Um, and so I sent the next one as well. But I, I kind of I recognized a couple of words like, you know, terrorism, which I found quite strange. So I sent them across and then I went out for my run. Um, and so I'm on my way back and, you know, phone goes and she's like, this is insane. Like, basically, he's banned from the Netherlands, but he's also banned from the EU. Right, so it's not just the Netherlands. He's banned from the entirety of the EU. Oops, sorry, it's probably someone trying to sell me something. Um, for two years, right? It's just like, what the hell? And then the second document was one where it was laying out the fact that there was a level three um, terror threat um, as a result of this um, anti-war rally. Um, it was just absolute <laughs> insanity. And so I kind of thought, like, part of me thought, this is a joke. This is a wind-up. Like, so I got the email address and I went and I was searching the email address, just thinking, like, you know, you know, sometimes you get like those, those Russian pranksters will get like Joe Biden on the phone or something ridiculous. So I was just thinking, this is a wind-up. It's got to be a wind-up. And no, it's not. It was an official email. I was like, oh, my God. And then, um, so that was that, you know, banned, like, you can't go. So then, you know, some people over in in the Netherlands have got some legal stuff going on um, to try and resolve it and sort it out. But but then I received the next day an email from someone who's actually quite prominent but didn't want to be named, so I'm not going to name them because I'm not a dick, um, basically saying that actually it doesn't actually mean that, that the... the 
basically the document, the list that's used to ban you from these EU countries is also used by the United States. It's used by non-EU countries within Europe, like Hungary and places like that, for instance. And it's used um, by Canada, New Zealand. Obviously, he's already banned from Australia. So actually, he's not banned from the EU. He's, he's fucking banned from the world. But it's it's insane. Yeah, because they just they just wouldn't let they won't let you in. Um, and, and then so, like, like labeling David as a level three terrorist. I mean, like a seventy year old grey haired man in a knitted jumper doesn't exactly fit the profile. They, all, they come in all shapes and sizes, terrorists. Mate. Yeah. You never do know. Not just ones that live in caves. Yeah. No, but exactly. Has it, it has it now progressed? I mean, you're now saying like he's basically banned from the world. I mean, essentially, what, yeah, yeah. Which is in trouble, you know. Well, the thing is, you know, you look at it and, and what was very interesting is because they kind of made a bit of a rod for their own back, the Dutch, because they made such a hoo-ha about banning him. Um, what they could have done is they could have let him in. He'd have given a 10-minute peace rally speech and then got back on the train and gone home. No one would have even really known that much about it, to be honest. But they made, made such a hoo-ha about it that um, they then had, it was like it was head, it was front page news, it was lead story on on like, mainstream news bulletins which is just insane and there was one just a few days before where they had two heads of police from um amsterdam in and these two coppers made the very valid valid point is that you can't ban him because he's never committed a crime he's he's not got a criminal record he's never even been investigated or arrested on suspicion of, of a crime and so you can't stop him coming. What we can do is is have a, a heavy police presence and then should he incite hatred obviously not he's ever going to do that but if he did then you can react to that. You know, you can pull out the mic, you can haul him off the stage and arrest him or whatever, but you can't ban it. To which the journalist who, excuse for a journalist, the presenter who's meant to be about free speech, because that's the point of journalism. Free speech goes, journalism's done, isn't it, really? He says to the copper, well, can't you find a loophole? Which is mad, really. And so um, so it created such a huge divide. You know, we were getting, well, he was getting death threats on his Instagram. There was one guy... Um, who went on a podcast, a mainstream podcast um, last week where he was calling on people who were mentally deranged to kill my dad. It's insane. Like, what the fuck? And so um, they kind of, like I say, they created this whole massive monster that actually they couldn't let him in because people all of a sudden who didn't know who the hell he was were like, who the hell is this guy? Mm -hmm. And even if they believed the narrative of him being a hate preacher and all this sort of stuff, they were going to see what he said in Amsterdam. Because, you know, I want to see what he's saying. Oh, my God, he's inciting hatred. Right, I'll share that. Ban him from the country, whatever. So if he actually, if they allowed him to go and deliver a speech where he doesn't utter anything about hate and is all about oneness and love, I ain't going to work. That's not going to work because the general public, anyone with a brain anyway, is going to go, hang on a minute. This isn't a hate preacher. What the hell are you talking about? So so they had to stop him going. And, and obviously... This was this was what they had to do in the end, which is insane, really. But but they're arguing a lot in in Parliament, you know. Now in in Holland, we shared a, a couple of videos yesterday on my dad's site where there's a couple of politicians that are on his side, um, where he's saying, you know, this is outrageous that he's banned, you know, blah blah. So to which a woman stands up. I think it might be actually the the foreign secretary or the justice minister. Sorry, the justice minister, where she says, you know, he's a Jew hater. He's a this. He's a that. He's a this. He's a that. All this stuff. That's insane, really. I mean, it's it's libelous for a start. But but then the guy replies and says, okay, can you provide one single quote or one single piece of evidence where he's ever said anything like that? And her face just fucking drops. It's a silence. Well, because you haven't got any, because he's never done it. And so, um, you know, there is a legal challenge there. 
I mean, it's one of those things I said to my dad, like we were talking in the car park because we only really see each other fleetingly, to be fair. We were talking in the car park and I said to him, I said, they made a bit of a mistake, really, because if they call you an anti-Semite, because of the way that anti-Semitism is defined nowadays, you know, where they change the laws and stuff, you can kind of call anyone that, really, to be honest. If you've ever been critical of Israel, that's all it will really take, you know, and lots of us have been critical of Israel, as we should have done, as we're critical of the US and, and any foreign power that goes and bombs people so you could they could kind of get him on that you know i'm not an anti-semite well you are because you you said this about netanyahu and they'll do you a bit but when they went for the jew hater i'm like no that's different that's not the same like they've called you that that's we're going big league now that's that's next level and so i think you know they they've dropped a bollock a bit really with that yeah and and like you said it's it's probably prompted lots more people to go out and find out what is it that this man is saying yeah. that makes yeah. him so dangerous he couldn't come to our country and speak and then like you said when they find out that it's literally the complete opposite of hate speech and he's just exposing lies and corruption of the government the deep state big pharma all this stuff they're, they're hopefully going to go oh this is why he's banned yeah Exactly. We well, that's, see, uh, that's what happened, though. That's what happened. The, the the Dutch translations were just flying off the shelves in the Netherlands to the point where Bol, um, B-O-L, which is basically their Waterstones. It's the biggest, you know, book, book distributor in the in the country. They pulled it from the shelves. Wow. Which, which, you know, is funny because Christiana messaged me. She was like, Bol have pulled it from the shelves. And I was kind of, uh, well, we'll see what happens um, because they've done it three times. Right. They banned him. So they, they they publicly ban him three times and everyone goes, oh, yeah, good old Bol. They're virtuous, aren't they? They're banning all this sort of stuff. That's great. But then at the same time, Bol are like, well, we kind of want to make a shitload of money as well. Oh, it's tough. It's tough, isn't it? So what we do, <laughs> we'll say we banned it and we'll keep selling it. And last time I checked, you could still buy it on the website. So that's quite funny. That amuses me because like I say, it's the third time they've done it. And then something similar happened with Twitter, right? Around the same time... The David Icke Twitter went back up because obviously Elon Musk is now apparently in charge of Twitter. But that lasted 12 hours, was it? <laughs> well, it's not. To be honest, mate, it's not even what happened. So basically what I did is I I, I said to my dad, it's like, I, I'm going to appeal. I'll appeal the Twitter ban for a laugh. Right? I don't expect anything from it because I don't trust Elon Musk to tell me the time. So I was like, I'll test him because I'm thinking he's kind of got to appear a little bit at first. Like he's protecting mm-hmm. free speech. So I appealed it and I, I heard nothing, but I tweeted myself. I was like, I've appealed my dad's band. So let's see how, how free the bird is basically. Um, and then a friend of mine who used to work at Twitter private messaged me. And he was like, mate, he said, they will just kick that into the long grass. He said, they'll just ignore it. Um, for a while, at least they will ignore it. He said, what you're better off doing is starting a new account for him. Mm. And then basically that, then that kicks the ball back into their court. They, the chat, the, the pressure's on them then what they do. So I started a new account and he got about 16,000 followers in an hour. It was mental. And so I did one tweet, which was, hello, like, all right, you know, I'm back. And then the next one was, I've got some questions for Elon Musk. And it was a link to an article that dad had put on his site where he's asking questions, genuine questions to Elon Musk. You know, if you are this good guy, basically, why are you, you know, linking AI to the human brain? Why are you pushing the driverless car agenda? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Legitimate questions to ask someone. Um, And it was nuked. Yeah, like like you said, like about it was less than twelve hours. It was nuked and it was gone, and it was like, oh okay, oh there we go. Then it just proved the point. And then basically last week, I think it was, so they had kicked it into the long grass for a while. Last week, I got a message from Twitter about 
his original account that I'd appealed saying that it was never, ever going to be lifted. Wow. Well, there you go. There you go, then. That's it. And again, like you are, you asked, you say, you asked the question in terms of the same of being banned from the EU and whatever. Tell me what law is broken. Do you know I mean? Tell me what law is broken. Because in in the world we live in now, where you know you can get people turn up a copper turn up at your door for using the wrong pronouns and stuff. Why are the coppers never at my dad's door? They've never been there once. So he's not saying stuff like he's clearly not incite, inciting hate or inciting violence because no. they'd be knocking on the door if he was. Well, there's laws in place to obviously still protect people against things like inciting hate. So oh, exactly, exactly, yeah. and that that's the that's the free speech argument, you know, when whenever you have an argument with someone about free speech, they they always come back with the most off the charts example to to throw back at you, and I always think that's telling because it, you know then they're not arguing in good faith. So if I said, well, I think people should be able to say what they want, like you can't censor it, at, you know, they should be able to say it, and then you deal with it, you know, once they've said it, you know in terms of free speech laws, and they always come back, I always hear it, oh, so you could say kill all Muslims. So, well, okay, that's inciting violence. There's a law against that. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, so you could just accuse someone of, I don't know, being a paedophile when they're not, well, you know, there's slander and defamation and libel, you know, next, next. And you go down and there isn't, there isn't, there's nothing. Like the, these laws of these examples that you give, arguing in bad faith, there are already legislation in place to stop that happening. Well, now it's shifted and it's all about language that is harmful yeah. and it's all about hurting people's feelings. So it's so vague that anything can become hate speech because it's how, how do you define harmful? And it, and it only works one way that, you know, because you, you take sort of my dad, for instance, and, and myself to a much, much, much lesser degree. You know, I take pelters sometimes mm -hmm. where where they will attack your appearance. They'll attack everything about you. Um, and they can attack my dad. You know, he's mad. He's a lunatic. He's this, he's that. So that, that could be, I mean, that could be considered harmful. Could it not? Do you yeah. know what I mean? But it's, but, but that's, you know, but whereas if I, you know, call his Eddie Izzard a man, you know, that's, that's, you know, mm. that's, that's dangerous. So of course he's got cock and balls. Do you know what I mean? It's not fucking rocket science. He's called Eddie, but <laughs> but you know it only it only works you know yeah. that one way. And I, and I've had conversations with journalists before actually where I go, okay, so you're saying that he's insane, right? He's a lunatic. He's a nutter. Okay, right. So there's two questions here. Then one, you actually believe he's a nutter, in which case you're attacking someone with mental health issues. How does that make you feel? Or two, which is the likeliest one, you don't actually believe he's a nutter at all, right? So I asked the question, why do you want everyone to think he's an art? Mm. And you never get an answer. I think I think I got called a, what did I get called as a response? But a name rather than an actual answer, because no one answers that. It's like, you know, hashtag be kind. All right, mate. Well, the, <laughs> well, the kind of arc seems like it's first you're ridiculed, then you're called crazy, and then it shifts onto dangerous. And I yeah. feel like that's the point we're at now, not just with your father, but even with people like Kanye West. It's like they've gone from calling him, you know, laughing at him to calling him crazy to now he's dangerous. And, and, it, and it feels like at the moment, if anyone speaks out and is a threat to the system, they're now getting very quickly put into that dangerous category. Yeah. It's exactly. you know, e extremist. Like, well, that's the thing. But they, they've they... even been labelled as having extremist content on social media. And that's, you know, you hear the word extremist, what do you think of? Well, that's what they've tried to do for a long time, is link 
you know, conspiracy theorists with, with terrorism. Mm. I think that's what, what January 6th, that whole kind of thing was all about that. It was all about linking people that can kind of see through, you know, they're Trump supporters, so they can't see through all of it, but they can see through, they know there's a deep state, basically. And so you link those people to, to terrorism, and then you can use anti-terror laws against them, as has yeah. just been, you know, you've just seen. But exactly, I think, yeah. you know, that whole kind of harm thing, like you said, how do you quantify that? Boy bands harm me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it depends how far you want to go into it. I mean, but because it gets very depressing, it's always nice to focus on something positive. And the fact that, you know, with the online harms bill and the online safety bill and all this sort of nonsense, the fact that they had to pull out the harmful but not illegal thing. Because that would have been, that was the end of everything. That was if you can say like I, I, it's not illegal, but you can be prosecuted for it anyway. That's fucking hell, man. Like that's next level. Because where do you draw the line? You know, you don't have to have committed a crime to be charged with a crime. I mean, that's just you hurt my feelings. Yeah, you know, off with his head. That's that's like get the cuffs. (laughs) That's that's minority report stuff. That is, you know, where you can do people for they've even done anything. Yeah. Um, so the fact that that had to be taken out is is a victory because that would have been I mean, it would have been the end of the Internet for a start. So to get away from censorship, we we really wanted to give you a chance to tell your story today in, in full, because we don't really feel like that's a story that many people have heard. We're obviously used to you being on the other side, interviewing people of and course, yeah. not really talking about yourself. And I'm not very interested. Well, I, but now we got you. I beg to differ. I mean, I feel like you've you've had you've lived similar to your father in a lot of ways. You, I feel like you've lived almost multiple lives already. Yeah, that, yeah that's true. That um, is true. Yeah, and and it is weird when I think back at certain things, or I see photos, or someone says something, and I think, oh shit, that was me, wasn't it? Yeah, like that. Yeah, I did yeah, that. Yeah. Fuck, yeah, it is weird. Yeah, that's well, true. going like right back to your childhood not to get all uh sigmund freud about it but right that is it seems like i didn't good... fancy my mum. <laughs> no 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 but it seems like a good place to start like what what was your childhood like and what was it like having a famous dad because obviously david Icke was famous as being a presenter yeah. and a footballer mm. be- way before he was doing what what he was doing now so do you have like memory of that i mean my earliest memory is is playing a plastic trumpet at ride pavilion bizarrely that it happens to be musical but i um yeah no to be honest i was an ill kid right so i had um two eye surgeries as as a as a toddler um and then i had um a bone wasting disease which my mum spoke spotted because i had this limp appeared so she spotted it when i was about four um and then i had two surgeries as a result of that so my basically my hip bone turned to mush um, and, and just literally fell out the socket as something called Perthes disease. And so I had to have all these plates that reconstructed my hip, which then I had to obviously had changed over later in life as I, as I had grown. Um, so I was told, you know, it'd be very unlikely that you'd ride a bike. You know, I went to school um, because they didn't give you a wheelchair. Dad was, uh, dad, my mum was like, we need to get, you know, I had to be wheeled around. So she went and sourced, like, I guess, from the equivalent of a charity shop. One of those like old school massive prams, like the Victorian looking ones, you know, with the big freaking huge mm-hmm. wheels, right? Yeah. Took me to school in that. So you can imagine how well that went for me, right? Um, and so all of this horrible stuff, it was like, because I was getting pelters, obviously, for that. Um, it's kind of basic training now, I think. Like, you know, when people say, oh, I don't care what people think, and you go, mm, yeah, you, you do, really. I'm kind of like, no, I really don't, like, because I've had it. And because I've had it, I know it doesn't do anything. Like, what is it? It's words, and they just disappear down the road for a bit. But 
at this time, dad was at the BBC. Um, and, you know, it was funny because wherever you went, like every, obviously before camera phones and all that sort of stuff, it was autographs and shaking hands and things like yeah. that. You know? mm. um, everyone wanted to be seen with him. You know, all, all uh, councillors and politicians on the Isle of Wight wanted him on their side. So that all, you know, you'd end up getting wined and dined at sleazy people's houses because they were trying to get him to endorse them. It was all very strange, really, given where it's all gone now. Um, and he never actually endorsed anyone, but um, I think he just went for the food. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so then I kind of, I wanted to be a, a, a footballer. That was what I wanted to do, which obviously, you know, was never going to happen because of all this, you know, hip surgery and stuff wasn't going to happen. But um, I ended up going to Portsmouth Football Club. Um, even though I'm a Derby County fan, I, I signed at, at Portsmouth um, in the in the Centre of Excellence because they didn't have an academy. Like hardly anyone had academies then. And got put forward to England schoolboy trials and all this kind of stuff that I wasn't meant to be doing because, you know, he's a cripple. Like, what the hell? Then all the stuff went off with my dad and it went from handshakes to oi, wanker. You know, it was very strange. Quite for, As a kid, it was surreal to, to sort of get your head around that. And we're being, I was being followed to school by reporters. They were offering money to friends of mine's parents to get them to say bad stuff about our family, which they, which they never did, which is incredible, really, because... I used to knock around with a lot of poor kids, to be fair, whose whose parents were skint. And, you know, mm. the Daily Mirror or whoever it was comes knocking. You know, they said no. Um, and then we went, I remember going on a family holiday to Greece. And we it was when the whole thing was breaking about dad and, 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 and an affair and all this sort of stuff was in the press. And so we were followed from pillar to post on holiday by the press. It was all very strange. And again, they they dad's a creature of habit, right? So if you go somewhere on holiday... If he eats the wherever he, wherever you eat the first night, you're eating every night, right? It's a creature of habit. <laughs> so we, we went to this restaurant, this taverna, and had some food, and then that was it. We were we were living there basically, you know, get your sleeping bags out, and um and so the media got wind of it, and they they found out, and they turned up, and he and they offered him money, and it was a rundown taverna, and and I know it was rundown because I got salmonella as a result of it, but um. They um they offered him money and he turned it down, which was incredible, really, because again they didn't you know these people didn't have money, and so then yeah, so then I was a footballer for a while, and then you know the the injury that I had kind of caught up, and I was never going to pass a medical or anything like that, so that went out the window. So then I became very angry with the world, um, and started a punk band and drank too much booze for a long time, and and went you know touring around the country and stuff, and um, but always loved sports, so I, I was playing ice hockey by that point. Um, because it's a great way to let anger out, you know? Mm, yeah, um, I can imagine. Um, so I was doing that for years and then went toured in America and um, just basically we, we we did six weeks on, two weeks off for five years in, on tour. And, and and as much as I loved every minute of it now, if if I did it now or if I'd have carried on to now, I'd be dead because it just got a bit silly, really. Um, no drugs, but a lot of booze, you know, and it was unsustainable, really. So there was one day I was I was on one of my two weeks off and I was in a pub on, on the Isle of Wight and some guy came over and he went, yeah, you play football, don't you? And I was like, well, I've not played football for years, mate. Um, but he was like, well, there's a football match tomorrow. It was, it was a beach soccer game on the beach, um, obviously, on the Isle of Wight, between the Isle of Wight and I think it was Portsmouth Football Club, some hmm. younger players. Um, basically, the Isle of Wight lads like, we don't have a goalie, we need a goalie. So I was like, all right, half cut, do you know what I mean? And I woke up in the morning, I shared a flat with my sister at that point. Woke up in the morning, a bit hungover, and she was like, um, you, you're supposed to be playing football this morning, aren't you? I was like, who, who agreed to that? You did. Oh, all right, man. So I borrowed a pair of gloves, went down, and I played in this game. And I had a bit of a, a bit of a worldie, really. Like, you know, the stars align sometimes, don't they? 
And I really enjoyed it. It's a totally different sport to grass football. Mm. It's a lot more exciting. And as a goalie, wearing grass football, sometimes you can just stand there in the cold for most of the game. You're basically a quarterback in beach soccer. Like you rule it. You you are the, everything's coming through you. You you face a shot every 30 seconds, basically. That's how it is in beach soccer. It's very intense. Like three periods of 12 minutes and you are, you are knackered. So then I got asked at the end of the game, you know, have you got a club? And I was like, no. So I signed for this club, like just a local Isle of Wight club. It was called the Simeon, which is the name of a pub, you know, so it was, it was a pub club to be fair. And then I'm, I'm, I'm sat there like literally a month later. That's it. I'm just sat there. And I sort of decided by that point, you know what, actually the boozing and the, and the touring is okay. It's fun, but I actually quite like being healthy and I actually quite like playing sports. So I'm actually going to focus more on that. And that's what I did because I am quite obsessive. Like I'll become obsessed with something. So I became obsessed with getting myself in shape and, you know, inside and outside mentally the lot. And so I'm sat there in the office because um, I, I was doing bits and bobs working for my dad at the time, uh, just admin stuff, really. And um, so I got a phone call at the office and it was it was someone basically asking, how soon could I be in Marseille? Which is a very bizarre thing to hear, to which I he was like, well, it depends who's paying. Would you know? What would, would, would you mean? And, Am I and so, walking? Am I going yeah. on a helicopter? I mean, well, that's it. Yeah, how long? Yeah, exactly. And so it was all very surreal. But basically, what had happened? The England beach soccer team were playing in Portugal the weekend before, and the following weekend they were in Marseille for World Cup qualifiers. Because how it works in beach soccer, because there's not much money in it, certainly not grass football money, you can't be flying to different countries for World Cup qualifiers. So what they do is they have a tournament. Um, where they'll have a tournament in Europe and you basically just do group games to semi-final, then those four have qualified for the World Cup. And then they, you know, they finish the tournament for who wins it, but really just get to the semi-boys and win the World Cup. That's all that matters. They do the same in South America and the same over in the Far East. And then those teams all go together and play in the World Cup, right? So the World Cup qualifiers were in Marseille. Um, France were already qualified because they were champions from the previous World Cup. They were coached by Eric Cantona at the time. So what happened the weekend before in Portugal is the guys are waiting for, for, a, um, for a coach and one of them was like leaning and he knocked a coffee machine off and it lands on the goalie's toe and it big toe and it basically takes it, right? Basically takes it off. So it's just hanging on, just about. Um, so obviously he's not playing for a long, long time. So they were trying to think on their feet. That, to be honest, I was probably like, the, I was probably like- Think oh, on yeah. their feet? Didn't even mean that. Didn't even mean it like that. But they they were, they. I was probably the fifth phone call, basically, um, where they probably phoned people, like, well, can you be in Marseille? And it's like, well, no, because I've got a job. Whereas for me, I was lucky enough to, you know, be working for my dad. And so I was like, you know, you've got a lot more freedom to, to go and do that. So I was like, yeah, okay. So I flew out to Marseille. I was told straight away, basically, you, you're, you, you won't play because, you know, you're going to be sat on the bench. So the first qualifier was against France and we got beat 6-5 and it was a good game. England side were half decent, to be fair. And so I sat there and, you know, and that was that. Fine. And then so I went back to the hotel and I was rooming with the, with the goalie, the other goalie. Anyway, he had this like funny turn in the evening and he was like, I suffer from vertigo sometimes. And I was like, oh shit, like I don't know anything about that, but it sounds horrible, like just being dizzy and stuff. So then the next day we were playing Greece. And it was must win, obviously, because we'd already lost the first group game. And so, again, I'm sat there on the bench. I've done my warm up as you do, but I'm sat there on the bench, obviously, just expecting to sit there for another 36 minutes. And then about probably about 10 minutes into the game, I mean, it's nil nil, but Greece are battering England. Um, the goalie's done. He's like, I'm, I'm literally, I'm seeing double. I'm all over the place. So the coach is like, you're in. 
because it's live on telly, it's live on Eurosport as well. So this is like, this is insane. I've processed this in my head. How is this happening? So I walk on the pitch and my attitude is always like, in for a penny, in for a pound. If I'm here, I don't want to shrink away. Like I will just, you know, do my best basically. So I face the first shot of the game, right? And honestly, it, it goes past me and I didn't even see it. Right, it went past me, and I just heard this massive bang of a crossbar, and it's flown off. And I'm like, I didn't even react. Like this is next level. These guys are like insane. Like that ball was going so quick, I didn't even see it. Um, and then they got a penalty, and then like I say, they are battering us, battering us, battering us, hitting posts and bars, and you know, players are making last ditch blocks and all this sort of stuff. I've made a few saves, and it's just like it's a matter of time. Anyway, they get a penalty. And this lad, Stevarakis, steps up. He used to play for Crystal Palace, I think. At that point, he was Greece's top scorer in ever in grass football. I don't know if that's been overtaken now, but then he, he was still number one. And so he steps up and he's obviously, you know, been there, done it, faced the best goalies in the world. Now he's got this knobhead. It's like he's not bothered. So I kind of walked out to him. I went, you're going down there. You, you, you're going bottom. You're going bottom. And he's just sort of looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? I'm going, this is where you're going. This is where you're going. I thought, you know, why not? Anyway, he went there, didn't he? Right? And I saved it, right? The ball comes flying out. A guy tries to hit a rebound in. It smashes me clean in the face, flies over the bar. Well, they dropped. Like, their morale just went boom. Mm. And we beat them 4-0. It was insane. And that was my, like, that was it. And then I played for England for about five years after that. And I went um, to some crazy places. Like, I played in Israel, which has kind of got me on my political journey a bit because I saw some stuff which didn't add up to what I was being told on the telly. And uh, we played in Azerbaijan, you know, like just dead random places would, would go in South Africa and places like that. And um, yeah, represent the country for five years. That was mad. And then um, and then went into into solo music. I still loved music. So I still wanted to play, but I didn't want to be in a tour bus getting smashed up. So um, I would just basically tour in my car and, and, and play football as well. And then and then I got a, a double leg break. Um, and that was the end of that. I never played again competitively at least like I've done a couple of charity matches since but but that was it you know my leg was flapping around Jeez. and and I went through some like emotional kind of stuff and went through the, the you know the stages of of grief um and so and then at, at the end of it do you know what like I was like I was just a hundred times better person and my dad always says the best thing that ever happened to you is you broke your leg and people kind of look at him when he says it like fucking hell but it was you know it, it made me understand everything and I kind of had to I'd been flitting between these different things. And, and then all of a sudden I had to face myself. Because I was lying in bed for a month before I had the op. And so, you know, you, you're off your tits on, on tramadol because the morphine was making me hella ill. Um, so I was on tramadol and, you know, you just, you got yourself to deal with and your thoughts. And it's not nice, to be honest, mate, because you, you have to deal with all the good things and all the bad things and no one's perfect. So... So anyway, so I came out of that and I, I went, you know that's it. I'm done with the Isle of Wight. I'm moving. So I moved to Derby because it's where I had lots of friends. I'm a Derby fan, so I would come here a lot to watch games. And I never looked back. And, you know, that was, what, 13 years ago now, I think. And I've been wow. in Derby and, you know, was doing the music and stuff. And then I was doing podcasts. I'm always interested, like you guys are, I guess. You know, I'm interested in what people have got to say for, mm -hmm. for themselves about whatever. Um, and so then the, the channel was launched because of all the censorship that dad had been having, getting banned from everything. It was like, well, we may as well start a channel then, because otherwise all we'd do is we'll upload all the videos to summer banned, upload all the videos banned, a waste of time, let's start our own, you know. Mm. So that was the, the point of it. Um, and then had a had a, a child and then COVID hit, uh, well, or rather didn't, but the narrative hit. And so... Yeah. 
How did the music thing come to an end then? Because we were of understanding like you were given some kind of a like ultimatum almost like we're going to drop you unless you. That was to do with that was money. Right. I was still playing football at that time and I made my first solo record. I had a manager, a guy called Paul was really, really nice guy. And we basically seen what had happened to other musicians because a lot of musicians on the Isle of Wight and a lot of really talented ones. And they will sign major deals, um, like friends of mine, the Jackson Analog, they signed a major deal with Ireland, which is owned by Epic Records. Yeah. And they recorded the album and then, yeah, no, we're not going to release that actually. And so they had to fight for like five years to get their own album back so they could release it themselves. It was just insane. So I, I didn't want that to ever happen. So we paid to record the album ourselves. Um, we recorded it with Dan Swift, who did Kasabian and Snow Patrol and stuff like that. So it was yeah, a good producer. That. Yeah. yeah, really nice guy as well. We recorded in London. And we just did it all ourselves and we got mates in to play instruments and, you know, and just really proper organic thing. And then it was a case of we own that now, that's ours. So all we need is a marketing budget. And so we went fishing for a marketing budget um, and we were offered one by an organization called Icebreaker, uh, which transpired. I think they were named in the Panama Papers, actually, because it was basically just a money laundering thing where they were taking money out of the city of London. Um, and then, you know, putting it in investments into projects and then sort of funneling it back out of the profits and disappearing off in, yeah. over the hills. It was all quite over my head, but there was something about it that wasn't quite right. And I think people got in trouble for it. But at that point, um, I was offered it. It was 100 grand, which is a hell of a lot of money because that was just, you know, that was just for stuff like radio pluggers and stuff like that because the record was done. I didn't have to pay anyone yeah. for that. And so they then said, you know, we need you to change your name. Um which I'll be honest, I wasn't that bothered about at that point because the studio we used to do the record was owned by Aqualung, and that's just one guy. And I always quite liked the idea of a band name anyway. I always thought Garifite was quite, it was almost quite egotistical. And and also, uh, it, it just gets pronounced wrong all the time. So, you know, that whole kind of badly drawn boy, Aqualung, you know, that that was fine by me. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll look at band name because I kind of want, I was looking at that anyway, that's fine, whatever. Mm. So I think I can't remember what it was, but I came up with a band name and they were like, no, no, no. What I need you, what we need you to do is distance yourself from him. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, as in like publicly, like disown him basically. I was like, well, that's not going to fucking happen in a million years. So obviously we told them to jog on. And then Paul was like, he said, I've got us a meeting with Max Clifford. Right. And I'm obviously like, why? And he was like, because he at the time is the Don basically. Now, whether you like him or not, he was number one agent yeah. at that point mm -hmm. right so basically it's free to have a meeting with him you know the, the money that they would want every it was like 50 grand a month if you went with him who's got that kind of money but the meeting's free and all i really want to ask him is basically is there a way around it or are we are we are we ever going to get into the industry yeah. with the ike name and if the answer is no then we need to rethink a strategy of what we're going to do and it might mean you know doing a Arctic Monkeys, MySpace thing. So you become big without the industry and then the industry has got no choice but to ignore you because you've already got a huge fan base and they like money. So it was like, okay, so we met Max um, and it was it was crazy because he was all right, to be fair. And and he and he said, he, he said, do you like your dad? And I said, yeah, of course I do. Went, well, that's it then, there's your answer. So you don't distance yourself then. And he was basically saying, you will live and die by your product. If your product's shit, it doesn't matter what you change your name to simple as that and if your name's Ike and the product's good then people will want to hear it and, and I got on all right with him like in that sense um, it was a very brief chat but he's he he was nice enough to me anyway but 
I had a meeting with his assistant first where they ask some questions or whatever. And um, at the time I was engaged to be married to my first wife. I was married when I was younger. And she said, basically, what's your relationship situation? I said, oh, I'm engaged. I'm going to be married in like however many months, whatever. She was like, mm, does that mean you can or can't be linked with people though? Right. So I went, well, I'd rather not be. What do you mean? And she was basically making the point that what they would do is they would link you with other famous people that were on his books so, for instance, say Kate Moss or whoever would come out of a, a, a bar or a restaurant in fucking Soho or whatever, you're on her arm, right? And then everyone goes, who's this guy? Like, who the hell is this guy? Oh, my God, who's this guy? Well, there's your publicity. People start listening to your records. And I was like, that's mental. And then she said, um, but I said, no, you know, obviously I'm not going to do that. But she said, um, in terms of skeletons in your closet, have you got any skeletons in your closet? And I was like, no, 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 I don't have any. Like, why? She was like, I was just basically so we can get rid of them. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I was like, how are you going to get rid of them? I'm thinking, what, are you going to shoot someone or something? How are you going to get rid of them? And she said, no, basically what would happen is is that the media, because they have such a relationship with him at the time, so he's dead now, but they have such a relationship with him at the time, that they would go to him and say, we've got this on one of your clients. So they go to him before they publish it, right? We've got this on one of your clients. What are you going to give us? And so he will either go, fuck them, they're a shit client anyway, print what you want. Or, okay, I will give you the exclusive with this, 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 and this. I'll give you exclusive with this, this, and this. Okay, brilliant, cool. We'll make that go away. And it was, for me, it was, you know, especially what I'm doing now, it was like such an eye-opener of Mm. what the hell, you know. But we didn't go with Max because we never had any intention of it. Just was I just wanted to have that conversation and find out. And so then I went, right, okay, well, let's go organic then. I'm going to go and go on the... um, on the festival circuit and I'll get out there and I'll just play because I'm not in it for the money anyway. Like I just want to play. Mm. If, if I can make enough to live, that'd be great. So I don't have to go to work and, and, and when I could be gigging, but you know, whatever. So I went on the festival circuit and then Paul phoned me again. He was like, right. He said, I've been approached by X factor and the voice, right. This was one summer. And I went, okay, I've not applied for those two shows. I have no desire to be on those <laughs> two shows. What do you mean? Oh no, no. They had scouts at the Isle of Wight festival. So again, out of interest, I was like, okay, well, let's talk to them then. So we went back to to them. And so what they do is they they send scouts out to watch musicians and then they get you to come on the show where you pretend that you're entering it, you know? So with The Voice, I was basically guaranteed to get to the quarterfinal. So they were definitely going to turn around. So that blew that myth then, like that whole thing where they hear the person and then they turn around. No, they know who you fucking are, right? And so... Um, I obviously said no to it, but, I, but I'd had enough of a conversation to get a little bit of background on the fact this whole thing's fake. Like, this is insane. Um, because obviously the voice was being shown as the almost the anecdote to the X Factor, wasn't it? Yeah. In the sense that it's about the music because they can't see them. But yeah, they, they're, they're, they're scouted and put there, right? So then when it came to um, the X Factor, that was extraordinary because a friend of mine um, who was our bass player for years, but always really wanted to be a front man. He's got a, a, a good voice and he's, he's a very good songwriter. So, you know, he, when the band split up, I went solo, but he went solo as a, as a singer songwriter in his own right as well. And so he went on the X factor, right? Cause he's more into the sort of pop music than, than me anyway. And you go through two rounds of ITV execs before you get to the panel, you know, of Simon Cowell and mm. Cheryl Cole or whoever else is on it. So he, he didn't get put through by the ITV execs, right? So obviously he's quite gobby, this lad. He was like, you have an effing laugh. I've seen the shit that you put on the show. Like, what do you mean I've not got in? You know, I'm better than that. And so they explained to him that, no, the, the really good ones go in 
and the really awful ones go in because it's entertaining, right? It's like a Victorian freak show, but you're just good and good isn't the same as the X Factor, right? So he didn't get in. And so then I was like, that's insane. So I had no desire to go on the X Factor because I was aware of that part anyway, which I thought was just wrong. So I said the straight no to them. But then I remember, you know, some X Factor was on in the background somewhere. And so I was just kind of watching it. Oh, because we turn this off, you know, whatever, but it's on. And someone got up and they sang and they couldn't sing and they had no rhythm. And they couldn't dance and whatever. And the whole panel is laughing and just belittling them. And the whole country is probably laughing and belittling them. And because they've obviously got mental health problems. So the best thing you can do is, is laugh at them. And so Simon Cal then goes, who on earth told you you could sing? And the person looks so confused, like, like broken, like sculpts off. And you're like, two rounds of your fucking execs did. Like you've set this person up to be destroyed in front of the entire nation. And then you come back to what we're talking about at the start. Hashtag be kind, harm. Yeah, Where's the harm? There's a hell of a lot of harm in that. You know, how many people went on the X Factor that are now either, you know, drink too much or take drugs or or took their own life or or at least on some kind of, you know, medication as a result of depression or counselling? Probably a shitload, I would imagine. Yeah, because they can't have been like, you are terrible. People are going to laugh their heads off at this. You're just, you, yeah. That's what we wanted. Just do yeah. what you did just now again, because I'm telling you, people are going to be roaring with laughter on the floor. Yeah, it's exactly. going to go. Yeah, great. You're through. Brilliant. You're through. You're on the show. And and yeah. you, I remember, remember that look of like shock of like, but I thought I could. I'm confused. And it's like, mate, this is outrageous. Like that's horrific. Mm. And so um, that kind of, I'll be honest, that experience sort of did me for for music really in terms of trying to make it whatever make it means. Mm. And so then I started doing some arts council projects. A friend of mine got me. He said, you know, I'm looking for some musicians. I've got this arts council project. Are you up for it? I was like, yeah, well, well, what is it? And what it was, it was, I'm trying to remember the name of the project now, but it was something about stories, um, writing stories or or something along those lines. And I was, so what it took was a series of different musicians, some singer-songwriters, some rappers, some spoken word artists. Mm. um, And they put us in places that we were meant to be out of our comfort zone. So they put me in a Young Offenders, right? And that was a crazy experience. So I went into this young offenders and I had to sit and get their life experience. And they, cause they weren't musicians, they would write their song of their experience through me. And it was an amazing experience. It was very strange because it was like going into a zoo in terms of, you know, like you've got the spider monkeys in the cage and that's what it was like. Like, cause it's not like a real prison with big massive walls, but it is caged. And that's weird to me because they're kids and I know they've done bad things, whatever, but it's still, it's just a weird thing for me anyway. So I did that and it, it was quite successful um, in Derbyshire, at least. It got a bit of public interest and media interest in, in it because it, it was different. And we went and performed these songs in these different places. So we went into the Young Offenders and we performed for them. And then we went into um, uh, to the Romani community. We performed some songs for them. And we went to these different areas and did this stuff. And it was great. So then we did another project after that called The Travelling Band. And that project went really big and they wanted to take it national, where basically, again, took a whole load of different musicians and we had to arrive. So it was Derbyshire at first. So you arrived in a village, met up at like midday, had a cup of coffee, and then went, right, off you go. But at 7 p.m., you had to perform your song to the village, right? But it's about them. And so that day, you're walking around, you're talking to locals, getting them to tell their stories, you know, blah, 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 blah. These are all old mining communities. So they're, they're decimated, to be fair, from the 80s. And they're just kind of trying to recover now. But the whole point of it was to take art to people that 
I always say example, like if you can't, if, if you're just about affording potato waffles, your kid's not getting cello lessons, basically. So these kids have no access to the stuff. So we were taking it to them. But it's also hella nerve wracking because you're telling someone their life story back to them. Mm-hmm. And you kind of got to do, you got to do it justice as best you can. So we did the first one which was in a town called Belper. So I wrote this song and then I had to perform it. And so there was about eight of us or nine of us on the project. After Belper, there was four of us on the project, right? Because the rest just quit. They went, I can't fucking do this. Like, it's too hard to write a song like that and then perform it. Mm. Whereas I relished it. Like, I loved it. Like, we did about eight of them. And Matlock Bath, which is a place in Derbyshire, I really struggled because the place has got no fucking heart. It's really weird. Like, it's a cool place. Loads of fish and chip shops and a river and all that sort of stuff. Arcades, candy floss. It's like going back to Victorian times, basically. But everyone that works there is from either Nottingham or Derby. They don't live there. And so there's no no one bloody lives there, right? So it's all just tourists. So when you were talking to someone, it was like, all right, tell us about your story. I was like, I don't fucking know. I'm from Sheffield. All right, sorry, mate. So I really struggled to write a song about that place because there was nothing there, really. And so that one I struggled. But the other ones, I, I was really, like, got really engrossed into it and, and, and it was great. And so we were just about to launch um, an, our next project, which was a, a pop-up gig where basically we were going to, a, like, the pub had been on it, obviously, and there'd be, like, a guitar behind the behind the bar. So I'd be sat there with a pint. Alex, uh, who was the project coordinator, he'd be sat there with a pint. Jamie Thrasavulu, who's an award-winning, amazing spoken word artist, he'd be sat up there with a pint. And you'd just be like that. And then all of a sudden, you just sort of get the guitar from the under bar busy on a Friday night and just stand up and belt a song and, and see everyone would be like the fuck is this dude doing like bang 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 and as soon as you finished it Jamie Thrasavulu bang does this big spoken word piece about the village and these people are looking at him and then at that point Alex like piles in bang bang plays his song and then you walk out and you go home and you would just leave this village like did that just fucking happen and so we'd go maybe do three pubs a night and do it over a series of weeks right and it was an arts council project obviously you'd have someone secretly filming it from behind the bar or whatever and so that was the project we were starting in the planning stages. And we'd, we'd actually, Alex had actually um, got funding for that because you need funding for the for, for the flyers and stuff that get handed out afterwards and all that kind of stuff. And and then obviously the Rona nonsense happened. And so obviously the pubs got shut down. And as soon as the pubs reopened, you go back to the Arts Council and it's like, yeah, we've got no money. Wow. So that, so, so that takes us right up to the start of the pandemic then. Yeah. So I basically... You know, I'd been a personal trainer for years as well, uh, working for Virgin and all this kind of stuff. And I had, you know, some Israelis trying to get me fired to the point where I had to get police restraining orders on them because they threatened my life. That's one little story in the middle of all that nonsense. But I, um, yeah, so I basically had missed like my daughter's first steps, her first words, the lot, because I was always working. And so when the pandemic hit, and I got to spend some time at home. Like I was obviously vocal on social media about the fact this is bullshit and lockdown is mm-hmm. going to destroy the economy and they're going to kill people as it has done and is. But at the same time, I'm sat in my garden with my daughter having a great time, you know, and, and I'd not got to do that. So there was like every every cloud and all that for me, you know, but then it got to a point where I was like, I need to, I need to speak out about this. Because what I was doing, I was saying stuff on social media and I was interviewing people for a podcast and, and getting information out there. But I realized there were so many other people that were seeing through the bullshit, right? But were frightened to say anything. And I was getting so many private messages from people going, mate, I'm on your side. But if I said that, I'd be sacked. Or if I said that, my mother-in-law wouldn't fucking talk or whatever. There was all these like reasons. And I was thinking, right, well, I'm not going to lose any friends because my name's Ike. I've lost all the normies about 20 years ago, right? So that's fine. So I don't have to worry about that. My family are with me because they're all as fucking mad, <laughs> whatever you want to think, as me anyway, in people's you know public's minds. 
So I've got the support. So I'm not losing my family and I'm not losing my mates there with me, right? So, okay, so I don't have to worry about that. I don't need to lose my job. I'm not worried about losing my job because I work for myself. So I don't have a gaffer to worry about. So then there is a, a duty in my mind then. There's more mm-hmm. of a duty for me to actually speak out on behalf maybe of people that are frightened because they get sacked. So then I started doing a bit more. And um, I got a message from someone who who asked me to speak in Birmingham. Now, I knew they'd asked me dad, right, first, because what people don't realize on dad's site, there's like, you know, you can you can go to the contact form and there's like the media. Um, uh, so for interviews, for instance, like bookshop, blah, blah, right? They all come to me, right? So every email comes to me. So... I'd, I'd received the email asking him to talk and I'd already replied saying, oh, he can't because he's he's talking somewhere else. So then I then get an email to my personal email. Like, we'd like to, it'd be great to have you because I know like your dad talks, but no one really knows about you got to say. And I was like, I, was, I know you've asked him first, but whatever, it's funny. So then I thought, um, that's funny. I'll just, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'll do it right. Same with, you know, playing against Greece. If I'm here now, I'll have it. And so I put a lot of thought into speech and delivered a speech and it went down really well. And then and then all of a sudden I was just traveling around the country. You know, my wife, uh, because by that point they'd allowed, you know, you to travel to and from the Isle of Wight a bit in terms of the boat. So she'd gone down to the island with with the little one uh, to see her family. because obviously they hadn't been able to see each other for a bit and all that sort of stuff. So then I was just like, well, I can't sit in my house on my own. I'm rattling around here. So I just was just going out and talking in different cities and doing stuff and and whatever. And then obviously then that big London demo mm. happened and i was asked to speak at that and uh, yeah we saw that the one at trafalgar square mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i did that and, and that was another one like I, I got approached by um the times after that and i gave him an interview i spoke to him for like an hour the guy seemed all right you know um naive me i spoke to him for an hour and so then my dad phones me he's like i hear jay says you spoke to the times and i went yeah yeah he was all right he went oh for fuck's sake see jay, dad's been there do you know what i mean he's like you never talk to these people unless it's live mate and I was like, that's fine, honestly, mate. I've got loads of stuff across. Like I was saying stuff to him. And he was like, oh, that's a good point, actually. So I, and he's like, right, well, we'll see. And anyway, a week later, fucking hit piece, right? Obviously. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Luckily, it's behind a paywall, so no bugger reads it. But they went for me. Um, and they basically didn't say any of the stuff that I'd said. You know, the bits where he'd gone, that's a fair point, and put in any of that stuff. Um, talking about COVID deaths. There was like two people I knew at that point that had had COVID put on their death certificate. Both families were appealing it because it wasn't true. Um, one was a long-term cancer sufferer who'd been given about six weeks to live. He ended up living longer than that, but then died. They put COVID, so the family were livid. Um, and then um, another guy uh, who was a year above me in school, his dad had died, but he had so many things wrong. He had kidney failure, liver disease. He was a really poorly man. And again, they put COVID and he appealed it as well. This is bullshit. I was like, so I know those two people, right? And I said, and I could tell you seven people that have taken their own lives. And the guy's like, well, I said, yeah. So that's the cost of lockdowns. And that's why I'm talking about it. And then it was very much kind of, you said this, you told people to, t- no, well, I was like, well, I'm going to stop you there, mate. I said, I never said that. I said, I never told anyone to do anything. And I did that whole Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman thing. I was like, I'm very careful with my words. I said, I'm doing this. I said, I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. I'm not doing this. I never taught anyone to do anything. Because if I do, I'm as bad as everyone else. We're being told what to do enough. They don't need me telling them what to do as well. True. And he was like, oh, 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 oh okay. Oh, sorry, I must have misheard that bit. It's like, yeah, of course you did. But at this point, that just on Facebook, it was at like 3.8 million views, right? This this speech. And obviously it was going all over YouTube, Twitter and everywhere. It was blowing my mind a bit, really. And where it got really hella real was like my um, my wife's auntie, who lives down in Winchester, a graphic designer, had some guy come up to her in the street and was like, you need to see this. And she was like, before you say anything, because obviously she didn't know what he was going to say about it. Before you say anything, 
that's that's my my niece's husband like what so it reached there it was just kind of crazy to me anyway so so then the times did this big hit piece but it didn't like it didn't make any sense like when you read it it was like he probably had put in some of the bits i'd said and the editor had just taken them out because it didn't flow like it, it was really disjointed like bits had been re- redacted which i think they probably were but what they did as well like they spoke about my wife being a teacher even though she wasn't a teacher she used to be a teacher she wasn't anymore but her being a teacher made it seem like, oh, she works with kids and you're out there gallivanting around, not wearing a mask and doing this so she could get COVID, so she could give it to the kids. Oh, fuck. So like this, creating this irresponsible image of me and, and my wife. And then the picture they used of me, rather than using a picture of me, like they had one of me giving the speech, but instead of using a picture of me, they used a picture of me and her where she's pregnant. A daughter's two and a half at that point, right? But no, but pregnant, that's more, again, I'm more irresponsible. I've got a pregnant wife and I'm giving her a fucking virus. And so they sort of built this whole thing. And, and that really then kind of told me all I need to know about the mainstream media, really. And then what the Times did is they then went to Facebook and they got Facebook to delete it. And then they bragged in the article that they'd got Facebook to delete it. And it was like, oh, so we're not reporting the news anymore. Because no. your job is not to get Facebook to delete that. Your your job is to report on it and say it happened. It's not to go and control the narrative, which they did. And so that kind of then catapulted me a bit, which was mad it catapulted me in terms of you know having people come up to you in the street and say mate this is fucking great and then also you know people call me a wanker and that's fine like i'll take both like you know both impo- treating both imposters just the same and all that kind of really hard stuff but but yeah that was it and then and then how, no, basically that's now you know we're here now where a lot of what we said and this is what gets me about the doctors because you know the closest i got to being a medical professional in terms of how the body works was a personal trainer right that ain't that i yet i knew what was going on and i knew what these jabs were going to do how the frick did they not know they did know they must have known and if they didn't know then then their their medical capabilities and qualifications are not worth the paper they're printed on because they don't if i know it and they don't that's mental Hmm. so you know i personally think that they knew exactly what was going to happen they just decided to take the 30 quid a shot and shut them out it sounds like you've had loads of little pushes like what happened with your experience in the music industry and then now the mainstream media it's like you've been taught all these life lessons in real time again very similar to your father you've almost been given the same kind of like no we're gonna we're gonna teach you this and then we're gonna show you i'm not sure how i'm saying we like the universe but yeah yeah almost it's like yeah you feel like in like, are you at a point now where you feel like everything that's happened to you has all been leading to this point and what you're doing now is actually 100%. what you are destined yeah. to do and everything was almost training for this? Basic training, that's what I call it. All the, all the horrible stuff, you know, all the shit with, with my dad and, and the getting bullied at school and all that horrendous stuff, you know, even the Perthes disease and, and being in a bloody Victorian pram and all that bollocks. You know, it gives you a hella thick skin. It really does. And it, and it teaches you that actually people call you names and then what? Yeah. Um, we see it all the time, like especially with the COVID stuff. I mean, I watched neighbours in the village I used to live in. They were on the same page as me. Like there was a guy across the road who was, who was um, um, an ex-Marine who was completely on the same page as me. And he used to say it, but then he used to wear a mask and, and, and he didn't want to, but he used to wear one. And it's like, you're not wearing one because you're frightened of the government. You're not wearing one because you're frightened of the police. No one did that because they were frightened of the fucking police. You're wearing one because you don't want June at number 42 to call your names. But you know that June's a dickhead. So yeah. give a fuck. Yeah. Like, give a fuck. Yeah. Like, who cares? Yeah. You know, 
it's breaking out of the prison of what other people think of you, which I think is one of the earliest messages that your dad was putting out there, even before he kind of got onto the deep state and everything else. It was like really simple message of just look, be your unique self and break out of that prison of what mm. other people think. And it's, it's almost like the most poignant message and lesson to be learned through the COVID era. Cause like you said, Everyone was doing all this mad stuff, not because the government told them to, not because they were scared of getting like a cold. (laughs) They were doing it because they were scared of what other people would say. And that that sounds like a lesson that you learned really early on not to care about. Did you lose friends from your stance that you took on COVID? Um, I did. Well, not I lost one close friend, but to be fair, we were on our way out anyway. So there was someone I played in bands with for years and we were really close and we would tour, mm. you know, around France together, just the two of us, like in, in a higher car and all that kind of stuff. So we had a close relationship, but he was very kind of our whole vaccine argument had gone on for years. Right? He was hella pro-vax, like he would have everyone look like fucking Hellraiser. He was obsessed with it, like for a bizarre reason, because he didn't have kids but was obsessed with childhood vaccinations. It was very strange to me, at least. Whereas I'm not vaccinated and my family aren't. And my attitude is very much like you do you, hunt. So I know I'd never tell people not to do it. Like you do what you want, mate. You do what you Mm. want, whatever. But just leave me the fuck alone. Mm. That's all I ask, you know, and leave other people that want to be left alone, alone. Whereas, you know, he, he didn't have that stance. So we had a massive falling out and I just went, you know, fuck you to be done with you. And then, um, I traveled down um, down to um, uh, Alton in Hampshire to spend the weekend with the, our old drummer, a really good friend of mine. And um, so I turned up and as always with doing this job with dad, like it's, um, this was just before COVID, the summer before COVID. Like there's no nine to five because things like Jeffrey Epstein doesn't die on a nine to five. So, you know, you have to react to stuff. Mm. And so um, I kind of arrived at Turles. I've been driving for like three hours or whatever. And I was like, mate, like he got, he got me a beer and I was like, I'm gonna have to sit in the garden and just do some work for an hour. Is that all right? And he was like, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it, mate. So I sat there in the garden. I'm just working away. I've got my beer and he's just, he doesn't come back out. And I was thinking, fuck's it, Tilda. Anyway, like, look, anyway, this lad that used to be in the band that we'd had the big fall out, he sat there opposite me and Tolls basically played matchmaker to get us back together, you know, as mates, which was nice. It was a nice touch. It was a nice thing to do. It was folly, but it was a nice thing to do. And so we spent the weekend together, the three of us, and we had a great time. We reminisced about the tour days and we drank beer and there was no political chat. There was certainly no vaccine chat. There was no Bill Gates chat, any of this stuff. It was just, you know, let's just talk shit like lads do and drink beer and have a laugh. And we did and it was great. And then COVID hit, right? Mm-hmm. And he just I remember him just putting in the group like, are you going to get a jab, right? And I just replied going, I think you know the answer to that, Tim. And then it just went off and it became a massive row. And then I just blocked and went, I'm done. That's it, done. But apart from that, no, like I, um, I never lost anyone else, mm. you know, because like I say, like I'd lost the normies before, you know, like there would be people that I would have played sport with or whatever that, you know, took offense if I spoke out about Palestinian rights or whatever, you know, that they, someone would, would have the ump with stuff. So by the time the Rona came along, I kind of, a bit like Carl Pilkington, really, like you only need 11 people to get you through life. I'd like sort of had that attitude of like, I've got this nucleus around me now, mm. people that I trust and love. And, you know, there's plenty of acquaintances that I'd played football with or ice hockey with or gigged with or whatever. But in terms of, a, you know, people I would be in the trenches with, I've got that. And I've still yeah. got that that same core now. So, you know, that's that's enough for me. And, and were you shocked by 
because we were shocked by the fact that people within the music industry, like people who are supposed to be like rock and roll stars, rebels. rebels. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing, I mean, mate. No one spoke out. There's like a couple of people, like Eric Clapton, Van Morrison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that was these are like old buddy duddies. I mean, like what, like where was yeah all it the was... punk rockers and the rebels and everything else? I mean, were you? It's you almost like it was them. almost like they were they were fake rebels in the first place. Really, it yeah. was very it was very strange, mate. To be honest, and and it, it's laughable because footballers put them to shame because footballers spoke out, footballers said stuff, and and these yeah. alternative rockers did fuck all. It's embarrassing. But for me, like they were very much on the same page as me with, you know, stop the war, like the Middle East, Middle East oil wars and all this kind of stuff. And I remember when COVID first hit, I just was like, guys, this is bullshit. Where's everyone gone? It's like everyone's <laughs> fucked off. And I was getting attacked by them. Like, like Reverend and the Makers proper tried to go for me on socials about it. And it was like, we'd been on the same page with most stuff, you know, slightly less, you know, social justice warrior stuff. But we certainly had more in alignment than we than we had apart, and then all of a sudden now I was getting pelters from them, and I was just like, "Fucking hell, this is just this is just bizarre to me." And I'd, it'd be interesting to see what these people's opinions are now. You know, whether they're just quadrupling down, or whether they're um, you know have the self awareness to go, "All right, yeah, okay." I mean, I, do you I got think it's that. do you think it's a case of like they just couldn't say anything because there was like bands like Kaiser Chiefs that or like Foo Fighters that went completely the other way. way. Foo Fighters did a Vax only gig. The Pfizer Chiefs were calling themselves that. And they were like, there's footage of a gig where they're like, who's got Madonna? Do you know what? It's kind of, it's interesting, you know, because the the Foo Fighters one was embarrassing because I was, you know, I was a Nirvana kid, you know, so it was gutting, gutting really. Yeah, it was gutting really. But what made me laugh was, you know, they, they, um, you know, they played, they had that, um, Vax only show and then it got cancelled because two of the bands had COVID uh, two of the members had COVID which is funny isn't it um, but yeah well, you know Taylor was massively the drummer who's now dead unfortunately was massively anti-vax you know like he spoke out about stuff prior so that's kind of heartbreaking really because I don't know what he died of but you know we, we can kind of have a thought but um, but in terms of the Kaiser Chief it was an interesting one because uh, my sister's got a friend on the Isle of Wight that's, she's really good friends with the singer but she's on our side like massively she goes to the stand in the parks and all that kind of stuff she's massively on our side and obviously she messaged him like the fuck and he it was a joke because he actually from what she said he actually comes from more our way of thinking but it was he was he thought it was funny and I was like when my sister told me I was like it's a really shit joke and it was like and it backfired on him and they got they got loads of grief for it and then she ended up this lady ended up getting grief off people on the Isle of Wight because she was mates with him but she was going but he doesn't think like that like he just came out with that bullshit I don't know why what were they thinking what were they thinking with that shit you know because he says uh, at the end like let's hear it for the anti-vaxxers boo and and everyone you know they cheered for Moderna yeah 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 which is just like insane and then booed the anti-vaxxers at the end and it was like which is you know embarrassing really what is going on absolutely crazy What's funny though is is what you see and and what the reality is very very different. So I've been given I've been sent messages and been talking to quite high profile people the whole way through this that don't talk publicly, which is annoying. Like I, I you know I get it they might lose the job, but some things are bigger than that. But whatever. But um, and it was interesting because I was I was talking to quite a few footballers actually. And so a lot of stuff was coming out, um, you know, particularly with like Jurgen Klopp saying like 99% of my team uh, are are vaccinated and these other clubs are letting it all down and all that sort of bullshit. And I was getting private messages from footballers just going, 
bullshit. Like I know Liverpool are like 40% jabbed. It's like, I know a load of these guys and they're not. Because a lot of the Muslim guys don't want it for totally different reasons, you know, than, than maybe we would say no to it. Um, and so it was funny, you know, it's like they the portray one end, mm. but actually no. And, and, and also, you know, this is a time when, when these clubs are traveling to countries where you need to have it to get in, but they're getting in, but I know they've not had it. So someone's getting around something, you know, and I think, you know, they want the public to think that the footballers have it particularly because footballers look after themselves. They're physical specimens, they're elite athletes. And if it's okay for him, it's good enough for me. And I only work in a chip shop. And that's what they want to try and create, you know, if they're taking it, but they're not taking it. Some of them are. And you know, well, some of them are, because some, some of them are, are collapsing. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like we, um, on the show this week, we've got an interview with David Cottrell, who's a, a former international um, footballer, played for Wales and, uh, yeah. Birmingham City and Sheffield United and Wigan played for in the Premier League and stuff. And he was, we were talking about it, you know, about these, these players that are just dropping and stuff and, and how clubs and players that are still playing are reacting to it. You know, a lot of, they know what's going on mm. and a lot of them are just frightened, you know, mm. frightened because they've had it or frightened because they told people to have it. And so they don't want to admit that actually fuck. You know, I was say, Novak Djokovic, the tennis star, he was like the one, and bear in mind how famous he is. I mean, everyone knows who Djokovic is. He yeah. was the one guy who actually openly said, mm. I'm not getting that. You can ask me my reasons why. You're not going to like them. But he said, I'm not going to get it. And he sacrificed going on tennis tours to Australia and America just because yeah. on the principle that he wouldn't get it. Yeah. But what I loved about that, because they've, they've changed the rules in Australia to let him in now, haven't they? For the yeah, new one. they did. Yeah. yeah. But what I find funny is, you know, so he couldn't go to America. He couldn't go to um, Australia. So he lost those two Grand Slams, which he probably would have won, to be fair, because he is yeah. the best in the world by a mile at the minute. And so he wasn't playing. He's just training, which isn't the same as any sport. It's not the same as actually competing. So he should be going down like that a little bit. And also, you know, he's not vaccinated. So he's, you know, he's not going to be that healthy. He's not going to be as healthy as the vaccinated ones. And then he comes to Wimbledon in between them. And he's just like, oh, boys. And he just fucking walks it, like just smashes him to bits. And it's like, you know, fair play, man. But what, what I find interesting with him, like he had this hella courage to do it. He was very um, vocal about it. He, he never backed down. You know, he could have quite easily said he was jabbed. I reckon if he'd have gone privately, you know, to the Australian and said, look, I'm not. But if I go public and say I am and advise people to do it, will you let me in? They'd have fucking let him in. Of course they'd have yeah. let him in. Because the money of having him at the tournament, of course they'd let him in. But he doesn't do any of that. He stands up, he's firm. But then because he he was on an advert for the World Economic Forum like five years ago, when before he probably knew any better, and they probably just used him and maybe paid him a couple of quid to have his face on an ad, then a lot of the sort of so-called truth movement then just was like, yeah, but that's bullshit because. And it's like, all right, okay. Well, if I look at your history, mate, whoever the hell you are, I'm going to find something. You know, you, you, you're you an anti-capitalist with an Apple iPhone. Okay, fine. Right, We're going to find something on someone that someone's done something. You know, I've had a drive through McDonald's before because I couldn't find anywhere else to get something healthy and I went, fuck it, I'm starving. Everyone's got that. Mm -hmm. You can't attack everyone for everything all the time. I know that's like the trendy in thing to try and find that 1% of them that isn't perfect and try and rinse them on it. But I found that quite depressing with Djokovic, really, because it's like this is a symbol of, of resistance mm. and you just can't help yourself but to try and drag him down when the other side is trying to drag him down the whole time. So should we not like be pushing him a bit, you know, but yeah. there you go. Well, talking of like some high profile people, I mean, have you ever tried to get Ian Brown on iconic or I haven't, your but shows I, should, at all? I haven't, but I should, you know, I'd love to, but he's kind of a bit of a recluse is Ian, isn't he? 
I've had like yeah. you know, I've followed him for a long time, and I've had I had literally had one interaction with him, and that was it. Because he's actually yeah. saying like Eric Clapton, for example, we mentioned earlier. You know, he was just singing like this has got to stop. It's like not exactly that much, but like. Ian Brown is proper going out there and talking about like geoengineering in the skies and Dr. Evil with his needle. Yeah, like he's he's actually like exposing he's almost... been into it for a while though. Yeah. Ian Brown. Yeah. He's like he was a I didn't realise this, but he was at Dad's talk in Amsterdam, ironically, um a, a few years back. Um right. where I I've actually performed at that. So I've technically performed to Ian Brown, so that's kind of fucking cool. But yeah, I didn't know he was there. But then he tweeted at me during this whole sort of debacle, just saying, oh, you know, I was at that talk in Amsterdam and it was this and it was that. So, oh, fucking hell. So you've been into the information for a while. You know, if you sit through 10 hours of my dad talking, you've like, you've got to have a lot of investment to sit through 10 hours of stuff. So he's obviously into it. I would love to hear someone like that or like Kanye. I mean, I don't know what you think, like staying within music. I mean, what do you think about the whole sort of Kanye I, I, thing? I respect anyone that is willing to speak their truth, no matter what the consequences for me. Yeah. So I, I have to respect respect anyone that will put everything on the line to speak what they believe to be true. You might not necessarily agree with everything someone says, mm. but if someone who, you know, especially in something as vacuous as the music industry and the fashion industry, which I guess are the, the two things he's in, if you've got the bottle to to risk it all on, on, the, on the flip of a coin, because yeah. your comments can be taken one way or another and they can make you or break you and he will take that risk. And I, I have to respect that really. Yeah, and, and it's a risk that I think that you're taking and everyone that is involved in Iconic is taking. I mean, just to kind of wrap things up, like where do you see the future of Iconic, the future of mm. what you're doing yourself? Because, you know, the platform's become really big now. I mean, it's from where Iconic was before the pandemic to where... Yeah, it's gone from sort of David in his bedroom era, which had its charm, you know. We, we love it. But now it yeah. does look as good as Infowar or London Real. I mean, I wondered if the London Real interview was actually like a cattle prod for you guys. It, to go, Do you know what? It's got to look as good as this. Not, yeah. not, not consciously, you know, mate, but, but possibly subconsciously, yeah, actually. Because what was the real catalyst to make stuff look great was I was seeing arguments on on social media um, throughout the, the thing where, you know, you would have this incredible information that was coming out on a YouTube video. And then you would have this fucking bullshit that came out on the mainstream media. Right. Now that one looked amazing. That one had chocolate sauce and hundreds of thousands. And that was a YouTube video. And I saw people use that as an argument against the information on that. Oh, so you're going to watch a YouTube video. Oh, yeah. Well, mate, I'll, I'll, proper sources, you know, and so it was a case of, you know, the old Nirvana lyric, the kids will eat it up if you package it properly. And it was a kind of a case of like, we're doing ourselves a disservice here because we're putting this information out there. But because it doesn't look great, and doesn't sound great sometimes, it's being battered by this bullshit because it looks better and it sounds better and it's mm -hmm. flashing lights and shit, fucking star effects. Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea, you know. And so for the Right Now studio, we, we had some people come in from London that were into the information and quoted enough to buy a football club, which was insane. And then we had some guys come down from Manchester that weren't into the information and gave us a reasonable price. So we obviously had the Manchester lot build the set. And when I, when they said to me, like, what do you want? I was like, think World War II, French resistance, underground meets ESPN sports scene. Right. That was that was literally what I said to them. And so you've got the desk and the lights of this kind of welcome. I'm Chuck Daly and welcome to the sports. Mm. 
um, tied in with, you know, we're, we're now broadcasting from underground, you know, where there's corrugated iron and brick. Because these here, like, they, they gave us one too many walls. So that is just stuck on a wall. Like, it's a, it's a, mm. a normal wall behind that. That The bricks are, like, that thick on wood. I mean, if it come down, it'd kill me. It's it? all lies. It's all fake. Yeah. Well, it is a sign of Freemasonry, that. You know, the brick wall. That's another sign of Freemasonry. So I, I keep hearing that every time I do a podcast in here. It means I'm a Freemason. But yeah, so that's just a wooden sheet. But so that's why they built it for that reason was, yeah, oh, I don't want to lose that underground feel, but I also mm. want to try and make it look slick, you know. And it's interesting, like, because at first we struggled to get guests. I was begging guests to come on. The big players wouldn't touch us with a barge pole, partly because of the Ike name, if I'm honest, and partly because of who the fuck are you guys? And so then when you actually finally got people to agree, like they would turn up on vMix, and, uh, which is like a Zoom thing, software, and they would turn up and obviously they can see the studio at that point. And the amount of times you would get like some of these American doctors would just go, oh, it's going to love. Oh, that's a cool set, man. Like mm. and they, their whole demeanor would change from, yeah, yeah, I'll have a coffee, please. I've got this podcast to do. Yeah. To, whoa, okay, well, but do me there now. And, you know, and it's all, yeah. it, it changed the whole dynamic. And now, like, we, we have guests booked up for weeks, sometimes in advance that we end up then having to move around because, you know, something will happen that's mm. like, shit, we need to talk to so-and-so this week. Yeah. Um, and so it's gone from, you know, sometimes on the day of shoots, we would like be on the phone trying to get people on. And that's what I loved. Like people have their opinions on Alex Jones and whatever, but Mike, I, I treat as I find. And to me, he's always been fucking awesome. And I, I remember like real early days, we, we we had a couple of guests. One was an MP. They then obviously had a message sent to them no doubt after i'd put the promo out going you're you know you're talking to the ikes oh fuck i'll shit myself so they pulled out so we we had like a couple of grassroots activists maybe a whistleblower but no name like no name that was gonna try and sell the show and get people to, to tune in and watch so i just sent um alex jones a message this is like three o'clock in the afternoon our time and he's on a golf course so he's playing golf like he gets no time to relax but he's playing golf and he was like yeah give me five minutes mate and so he pies off his game of golf with his mates and he's just walking through a golf course, just talking to us. On So we had a guest and I was like, you know, like I say, people can say what they want about him, but as far as I'm concerned, he's just fucking golden. Like he's been great to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's come under the the same sort of uh, flack recently, except in his case, he's getting fined for, I mean, I can't remember what it was last time I read it. It was just like a billion pounds or something. Well, it's, 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 it's more now. It's like one and a half billion now, but they're talking about like a trillion or something. It just it becomes monopoly money at that point. Mm. I, I think they've actually gone too far. The same as banning dad. Like mm. if they'd, if they'd have, you know, just closed down the rally, in, in Holland, they shut it down. It's not happening. It's banned. You get a bit of uproar about that. Yeah, it's freedom of speech or whatever, but you're not banning someone from the EU for two years. But they went too far with that. And so I saw a lot of things on social media. I can't stand David Icke, but David Icke's a nut, but because it's mental what you're doing. And it was the same with Alex Jones. Like you could have fined Alex Jones, what, five million bucks, a million per family, right? That would probably bring down InfoWars, five million quid, or say 10, two million per family. That would destroy InfoWars, which is the whole goal. That's obviously what they want. 10 million bucks would would bring down InfoWars, I think, right? So they could have done that. And you'd have people like us go, man, that's out of order. But you would have others within at least the mainstream mindset that go, yeah, fuck it. It's $10 million. You can't say shit like that. Whereas when you go one and a half billion, and now they're talking about a trillion or whatever, again, I don't like Alex, but Alex Jones is a wanker. But 
I saw it all over social media. Loads of people just going, what do you mean a billion dollars? Like this company, uh, this American company went drilling this thing in, in, in India. It killed 15,000 people because they poisoned the water and they got fined 500 million. This guy's getting fined a billion and a half. What are you talking about? You know, they went too far, I think, on it. And I think. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it, it like feels like the pendulum's just swinging the other way and they're going so hardcore on the censorship and the penalties that it just becomes completely laughable. Do you know one thing, just one more thing quickly, just with Alex Jones, right? Hmm. So basically, I got a letter from, because they're, the parent company that owns InfoWars has filed for bankruptcy, filed a while back. So I got this letter from the bankruptcy lawyers saying, like, you know, this is a list of the people that are owed money by this company, basically, and they owe us $9,000, right? No, they don't. So I went back to them. I was like, they don't owe us a penny. They literally don't owe us a penny, like nothing. Oh, okay, all right, all right, sorry about that. So the letters carried on. So then I went back to another set of lawyers because about five sets of lawyers. In the end, I had to go to all of them. Like, guys, they don't owe us a penny. They literally don't owe us a penny. What would they owe us a penny for? They don't owe us any. Oh, okay, all right. Anyway, the letters are still coming. I was putting them in the bin now. But I was then approached by some mainstream media journalists. Oh, I've seen that your name is shown up on the transcript of, 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 of creditors or whatever. Uh, what do they owe money for? Is it is it what David charges to speak to? Like they, damn, my dad does never charges for a podcast ever, never, ever, ever has and never will makes a point of it um and so it's like no he's not like and i went back to the guy in the media i was like because normally i don't talk to him right now after the whole times debacle but i went to dad i was like look i said i'm going to reply to this guy i said because he's going to print what he wants anyway and if i don't reply then he'll just print that they owe us money and they will theorize that it's because you charge for speeches in which case people will go oh fucking grifters right so i was like i'm going to reply because then at least if i reply and tell him that they don't owe us a penny because they don't then when he goes public on it, if he does and says, I've got the receipts where I can just reply to him on Twitter or and at least put it out there and go, what part of they don't owe us a penny did you not understand? You know, and then at least it's a bit of comeback where actually they might have to go, oh, uh, it makes them look like a dick, basically. So dad agreed. He was like, yeah, go on then. And to be fair to him, I replied and he was really graceful and polite and nice. But then he was like, oh, and oh, just before uh, I leave you, would it be okay to get your comment on it? Delete. Not a chance, because whatever I say, you're going to twist it. Mm. So, no. But, yeah, anyway, that was just the last Alex Jones thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so what, I mean, in terms of, like, the future of Iconic, then when, where would you like things to go from here? And uh, Honestly, I think my brother's probably got a different view. I think he'd like to kind of expand the company. What I would like is just to win the fucking battle against this bullshit so we can all just stop doing it, if mm. I'm honest, and I can buy a derelict railway station disused railway station do it up to how it used to be and just live there drinking craft beer and hanging out with my kids that's what i want if i'm honest it's not gonna fucking happen but that's what that's what my dream would be but unfortunately that like i say that's not gonna happen so what i, I envisage happening is the more censorship on different platforms the more people will join i think and you know maybe we'll launch more shows do you get dumped from this channel, come to Iconic, and 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 it will grow in that sense that it will just become mm. a place, place where people know they can say what they want. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It is to, to see it as a battle is the way to see it. And I feel like you've kind of met that head on by making Iconic look as good as it looks. And you kind of come to this realisation, obviously, that if we're going to be competing with these guys then it's got to look as good as ESPN Sports or the news at 10. And, exactly. and that's that's exactly. what you you guys have done, which I just think is, is well, brilliant the, because the thing, people have to take it seriously. Well, exactly. And also, you know, I think there's still some people that are caught in the, in the trap of 
trying to get stuff on the mainstream media. Why aren't they talking about this? Why are they talking about that? It's like the fucking, because they're owned by the people that, that you're asking them to expose, mate. They ain't going to do it. Mm. So rather than complain, why is that not on the BBC? Right? Let's just make your own, mate. Mm. Just put it out there and do it that way. And so then people have a choice. And people know when they hear the truth and they know when they're being lied to. It's just, it's within us. We know. Like you'll be in a pub and maybe you'll sit with a, do you mind if we sit here, lads? Thanks. And then you get chatting. And when they leave, amount of times you'll turn and go how much was that lad full of shit now you don't even know the guy but you know he's talking shit because you know when you're being lied to you know and i think most people don't get given enough credit most people know when they're being lied to and so if you've got an alternative source which is telling them the truth uh, as best as you possibly can because it's a minefield at times you know because there is so many conflicting things going on there but you, you put the truth out and then you've got one that is purposely lying to people public will go now that this one feels right to me. This one makes more sense to me. This one aligns with my personal experience, you know, because it's like safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. Well, my auntie got poorly. My uncle uh, had blood clots, blah, 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 safe and effective. And in the end, then someone comes along and says, you know, these things are fucking dangerous. Well, yeah, I know they are. So that's bullshit, you know. And that is, I think, part of what Iconic is and, and other channels as well, because there's a hell of a lot of other places out there now as well, which is great. I know some people have that competitive thing. We're the opposite, like more the merrier. Because the more information it gets out there, the more chance we've got of winning. I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Schism. We've got plenty more episodes on the way. In the meantime, follow us on our Instagram at schism.tv. Keep watching the skies. Thank you.